What's up everybody, Tara Wellman here. Welcome back to Winter Wonderland, where it is still winter and we are still wondering when someone, anyone in baseball will do something interesting this off season. So while we continue to wait that out, I decided to hyper-focus a bit in today's episode on a Cardinals topic that is near and dear to my heart, as it is to my guest today. J.J. Bailey covers the Cardinals for KMOV and maybe the only other person on the planet as intensely invested in Colton Wong as I am. Now, we talk about a lot, and if you're not already a Colton Wong fan, please stick around. I know it may not be your favorite topic in the world, but he makes some very valid points that I think emphasize why 2019 could be a very important year in the career of Colton Wong. We also get to some of your questions, so stick around to see if we answered that. And there may be a Bryce Harper take at the end of the show. It's what we call a tease. Here's JJ Bailey. So JJ, this show, I usually try to give people what they want, right? Give them the content that they're interested in. This show is all about me getting to talk about Colton Wong because I feel like that doesn't happen often enough, much less with someone who's as fiercely defensive of Colton as yeah. I am. So thank you for being here to give me, give us that opportunity. <laughs> Of course. Hey, anytime. You know, I, I I put myself out there. If anyone ever wants to talk about Colton Wong, I'm only a phone call away. So well, I've, I've spent the better part of five years doing this. So I, I share your pain. I share your frustration. <laughs> yeah, it's and I'm sure we'll get into this, but it's been interesting seeing some people turn the corner and start to give him a little bit, a little bit of credit here and there. Um, yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing what uh, being on cut four, four or five times during a season will do for the national consciousness. Yeah, suddenly people start to pay attention a little bit to uh, to what you're capable of. Um, we can get to some other things about the offseason and what the Cardinals have done or what names are still out there. That stuff will all come later. But let's dive right into this Colton Wong thing. Um, I remember hearing you talk about this last season. I don't know, it was probably in the middle of that incredible August run. And Colton was doing yeah. amazing things and everything was really coming together. But we we were starting to get a glimpse of what, people like yourself and me have been hoping for and have been telling everyone, just wait, it's coming, I promise, with Colton. And yet, there are still the detractors, still the people who don't care what the stats are, who don't care what the numbers say, who don't care. What is the craziest anti-Colton take that, that you've come across in this you know, handful of years that we've been, we've been fighting the good fight? <laughs> That's tough. I think that like even the most significant detractors um, will acknowledge um, that he's at the barest minimum above average in defense. And I have plenty of arguments for why he he's way way beyond that. But I think the the strangest argument uh, in the anti Colton Long camp is that like he's just not that valuable because like that's great he's good at defense but he's just not valuable. Um, and I understand that part of that is because the league values offense so much more than defense. I think, you know, Jason Hayward's $184 million contract is probably the last big time deal you're going to see that is largely based on defensive, defensive metrics. Now he had a very, he had some good offensive seasons and had power, but largely his game changing ability in right field is what got him paid. 
and that hasn't worked out so great for the for the Cubs. Um, but for the longest time, I could never understand why the same fans who would salivate over Anderson Simmons playing shortstop in a way that was reminiscent of, say, Ozzie Smith, you know, they would love that and they would mourn the loss of guys like Ozzie Smith and everything, could have a, in my opinion, if, if not exactly Angleton Simmons level, certainly within spitting distance of him on defense, but just on the other side, on the right side of the field, and completely disregarded as as being a, a, a novelty. Like it's great, he, you know, he makes these great plays on on defense, but like you know, he's a two fifty career hitter. Um, yeah, he hits some home runs, but you know, he strikes out a lot. This and that. And in the same breath, being like, God, wouldn't it be great to have somebody like Anderson Simmons who can change the game on defense? But because it's at second base, it's suddenly less valuable. And that's kind of the strangest take that I've gotten is people who don't like Wong don't necessarily don't like defense. They just, for some reason, don't like defense at second base. What I don't understand is why is Colton Wong not a valuable piece of this team, considering he had a, by all, by, by cumulative stats, a brutal offensive year last year. Most of that is contained in the first half. Now, however, he only played 40 games in the second half, but whatever. It's, it's, it's that he's a 2.8 war player. I mean, if you go by Fangraphs, he was 2.8 wins above replacement. For a guy that was swinging a pool noodle for, you know, two-thirds of his at-bat, he's still for still, almost three wins yeah. better than an average player based almost entirely on 40 games at the plate in the second half and all-world defense. When, when you're saving, when you're 17, 18 runs better than the average defensive second baseman, and you look at the amount of one-run games and two-run games, and you cannot draw a line between a guy who can take runs off the board and value. I don't know. I don't know what they're looking for. I mean, maybe he's got to hit 275, and then everything's fine. But I would argue that if the rest of the offense, the guys who are paid strictly for their bat, guys like Matt Carpenter, guys like Marcelo Zuna. Gold glove in left field, notwithstanding, that's insane. <laughs> but you look at the guys that are on this team getting paid to hit baseballs. If they do their job, Colt Wong's 250, 260, they get swallowed up by a great lineup and it doesn't matter. And all that you can talk about is, thank God he's there on the right side of the defense because how many times did he, did he keep somebody from going first to third? How many times did a what would appear to be an RBI double turn into an out? Or a double play at some points, like that value. And I understand that the, the league is migrating away from defensive uh, value in terms of dollars and in terms of how you build a team, but it doesn't make that not valuable. And so I don't understand why people who are looking for what's this guy worth to us when someone shows you, okay, he's almost a three-win player, largely on the back of his defense. Why that immediately goes out the window? If a guy was a complete donkey in the field, but he was a three-one, a three-win guy with his bat, people would be like, "Oh, it's great value. You're getting three wins for him." Never mind the fact that he he can't catch anything. It doesn't <laughs> matter. Like, I mean, everyone's been able to like, you know, you talk about it, but people overlook Matt Carpenter's defense all the time for the sake of his bat. And it's 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 strange to me that no one is even not. I don't say no one, but the the majority of fans are not willing to do the inverse of that which is, okay, he's not good at this aspect, but he's great at this especially, aspect. Especially when so many of those same fans will say very clearly, one thing the Cardinals need to do is improve their defense. 
but then you want to take Colton Wong out of the mix. It just doesn't make any sense to me to take the best piece of that defensive makeup in the infield out of the picture and say, look, we need to improve our defense. Uh, That's where it gets, you know, it's so, it's so difficult for me to find where the, the mental gymnastics all start to make sense for some people, because if you want defense, then you should want Colton Wong. <laughs> well, I think some of it. I think some of it is is uh, like context isn't necessarily the right word, but I think there is some stain. I think that yeah. uh, you know he he carries the the World Series being picked off in the World Series. Um, I think he carries that far more than he needs to, but he he still will bring that up. And like he even when he got his contract extension in spring, and I interviewed him, and he said that he part of that relieved him because now he felt like, you know, he really wanted to be part of the community, him and his wife, they wanted to do charity work. They wanted to be out there, but he said that he always kind of was hesitant. There was a little bit of a fence there because he still was carrying the sting of that, that 2013 postseason, And it, it was hard to fully emotionally engage because you feel like the most hated man in the world. Now he didn't use those exact words, but I do think that maybe some of this perception, you know, if Harrison Bader hits 250, um, I don't think that people complain as much. And I do think people cite his defense as, okay, this is an acceptable cost of doing business. I think maybe some of that still colors the opinion on Wong. I think the the inability to, to maybe be the base stealing base guy that they thought he would be can play into that. I don't think he gets viewed in a vacuum necessarily. I think yeah. that... Yeah. Unfairly, there's things attached to him from previous seasons that color the current perception. And that's one of the things that I struggle with the most is this idea that a rookie who was the the focus of one moment in, right. let's be clear, a series that was a lot of unfortunate events. It was not just the one moment where Colton got picked off in the World Series, but that's the only one anyone remembers from that series. Um, but that seems to be the only thing that a lot of people can can equate with who Colton Wong is. And it, it, I don't understand the inability to get past that. But I do think we also saw some of that from Colton in that, uh, what was it, the Players Tri- Tribune video that he did in the season. I think people kindly find, finally kind of saw how significantly that impacted him uh, on a personal level, emotionally, mentally, just trying to get past that himself, which may have uh, had an impact in in sort of turning that corner for a few people as as he started to do some ridiculous things. This uh, well, season. and I'll say that if if and if that doesn't, I think that like you know, I was very I was very young to the job at the time, and so I didn't have proper context. And and many years later. The more I go back to it, the more that I am impressed because I, it's no secret to anybody who knows me or my work or anything like that, that I am a huge proponent of Colton Wong and I like him as a person. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's probably some other, there's going to be a little bit of bias on my side, but the one thing that I, I have in retrospect uh, really appreciated was when that happened after that game, Colton Wong, the rookie stood at his locker and the media surrounded him with TV cameras and bright lights and everything. And through tears, gave a, like, a answer to every question, stood there and took it. And really, that shouldn't have happened. I mean, when a rookie gets picked off in a high-profile moment and he's emotionally wrecked, um, in my opinion, you know, there's a veteran, a veteran on that team should, should essentially be his blocker. 
he should be able to go back into the back part of the clubhouse that the media can't go to and collect himself and not have to wear this in the rawest possible moment. Um, somebody should have come out and, and handled those questions. And then if he was ready later, come out and did it. Now, I don't know if he told if somebody tried and he said no, but I do know that now, after years of doing this, it's really, really striking to see that this guy who has no real connection to anyone on this team, he's been a teammate of them for, for a month, you know, maybe a little bit more. He comes out and stands there and in the lowest point of his professional life, answers every single question and doesn't hide from it and doesn't run away. And even if, you know, whether they offered or not, nobody's there to back him up. Nobody's standing next to him. He's on his own. He's on his island. And for him to do that, to me, like that's my appreciation for him has grown as I've, as I've really come to appreciate the context of, of how significant that is for somebody to do, to be able to collect themselves enough to own the mistake in the moment and to understand that as part of this job, I get interviewed after the walk-off. I get interviewed after something like this. And I don't, and I don't think that fans, that's, that's, a, that's a weird media thing that I don't think maybe fans care about, or maybe they do. But I think that's something that like, that goes underappreciated, especially when evaluating him and the struggles. Never once has he ever made an excuse or, or been anything less than candid and honest in his entire career. And so why people haven't taken to him in the way that I would have expect, expectedly, uh, exceptionally, um, when he when he's doing eye popping things defensively, like the things that exhilarate you as a fan, yeah. why that there why there's still been that wall between embracing him and or the fans embracing him, I, I don't get it. I don't understand it. So it's, it's interesting that that moment. I think it says so much about. Colton just as a person, right? Because he's he's fine with being that guy that's transparent and genuine and real and sometimes very raw in a way that's unexpected because we typically get these very polished, very media trained, very kind of cliche responses from athletes at that level. But I remember um, to go all the way back from the very beginning when I started covering Colton at single A, um, he, he was very young and very fresh and very wide eyed. And, and that was yep. all still very real. But I, I talked to his manager at the time, um, Johnny Rodriguez on that team, and, and he couldn't yep. say enough good things about him and the way that he approached the game and the fact that he always wanted to learn and he was always ready to try something. When he came into that league, he was not particularly highly, highly rated defensively. And when the rankings came out in the late summer, he was the best ranked defensive second baseman in the league because, and, and this was what Johnny Rodriguez was telling me, was because he took every piece of advice, he took every suggestion, he took every opportunity to get better. And a kid at that age, that highly touted as a, as a first round draft pick, it was impressive to see that. And it was also impressive to talk to him and hear him basically echo those same things and say, look... I love this game. I want to play to the best of my ability, almost sometimes to his detriment, right? He wants to be at the very peak of his potential all the time. And sometimes that trips him up, but he's, he's been that way literally from the very beginning. And it's so hard yeah. to, to not see, I think people embrace that in the way that it comes across perhaps differently in person than it does, you know, through a TV screen or, or when you see him yeah. on Twitter. <laughs> and I, I think that he, I think that he's also, um, at least early on in his career, I think he's gotten better at this over time. Um, but I called it like balancing the ledger where 
he would, you know, he would he test the outer limits of his abilities in the field, and it was almost a, there were times where he would try to make plays that, while it's incredible that he could even attempt them, no one, no reasonable human would ever expect this play to be made. <laughs> And it was sort of, I, I called it balancing the ledger, where he would have a rough day at the plate or he would botch those easy plays. Early on in his career, he would botch those easy plays. Um, and it was almost like he would try to make up for the red in the ledger with an, an equally, you know, if you, if you botch a comeback or like right at you, okay, so now I have to make this play that only Superman himself could make. And so he, and occasionally he would pull it off, but yeah. more often than not, he would actually compound the mistake by trying to do too much. Over time, he's kind of grown out of that in a way, in this comfort that he needs to play with a certain freedom and he needs to play with something bordering on recklessness. Mm -hmm. Very early on, he was high risk, high reward. And what he's done is remove the risk so much as, and try and bump the reward up. And so he plays right on the edge of chaos almost. And I th it's taken him a while. I mean, for somebody with this level of ability, and he's a little bit undersized, so he has to play at an almost maniacal level because guys his size aren't Major League Baseball players. Sure, there's some of them, but there are stories because they should not be Major League Baseball players. So he's had to harness that, that feeling of, I have to go a million miles an hour because if I slow down for a second, I don't belong here anymore. And he's found a way to kind of like, I think this year was the first year that you consistently saw him do it. And that's why I think he started to garner the national attention. He's made plays like this before he's made there's sequences that I've written about where he made a play on the other side of second base. And the next at bat made a play on the other side of first base. And that's not, that's not a reasonable range, but those are always, those are always canceled out by, dumb mistakes or careless mistakes. And this is the first year where you saw him become comfortable at what his limit was. And now that he knows it and he's confining his attempts to his, his limits as a player, you've seen just how eye popping those limits are because he's not detracting from these plays by trying something crazy. He's just showing you how good he can be the outer limits of what he can do. Yeah. Yeah. And I think often what I'm about to say sounds like an excuse and I'm not really trying to make an excuse for some of those moments where, you know, he made an attempt on a play that you're like, why, why did you even, why did you even try that? But early in his major league career, especially coming off of that, World Series experience and, and dealing with the pressure of that, not only trying to make up for that, but also then in like back-to-back -back seasons, he was supposed to be the guy at second base. Yeah. And late in the game, you know, there was this this veteran guy that was brought in and, and all of a sudden the tone changed from Colton's our guy to, oh, well, he's got to earn it. Yeah. So we'll, then uh, you we'll see, see him. Can do. We'll see what he can do in these first few innings. But when the game's on the right. line, uh, let's go and, with somebody. And for someone like Colton, who has to play at 11, to yeah. then also feel the pressure of, okay, now if I don't make every play and, and make good contact in every at-bat, then I'm not going to play for four days. I think yeah. that compounded sort of that natural mental battle that he was going to have to fight anyway. And we saw that year after year after year. 2018 was kind of the first time where it was like, well, there really isn't another great option. So we're yeah. going to ride this out and see what happens. <laughs> well, that comes to the head, really. And I, in, in, was it 2016 when 
he so I was very lucky. I I happened to get this interview and I was very lucky about it. And I'm I'm promise I'm not trying to like tout my work. I'm just saying that like when I stumbled into it, uh, I was kind of shocked by how candid he was. But he was explaining that like the game was no longer fun for him. And a lot of this had to do with Matheny's style of managing, which is every day is the same. You you know you stay on the you know the straight and narrow. You don't try and do the fantastical thing. You try and do you 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 don't want to be occasionally great. You want to be consistently good. And that's something Colton needed to learn, but he didn't know how to necessarily synthesize that message with the player that he was. And I mean, he was bounced down to the minors. He was benched after going two for four. He was benched after going over four. He, he was thrown in center field. And at some point you just, you have this identity as a player and that has been stripped from you. You, you believe you are one of the best second basemen in, in baseball and your team is telling you that you're so unreliable that you're really just kind of an afterthought. We'll put you in sometimes. Maybe we'll throw you in when the guy, when we got a righty starter that we're facing. And he, I think 2016 was, I I believe that was the year I get them all mixed up now, but that season was, I think, uh, transformative for him because at the end of that, he had decided he had that quote that he said, no one's going to tell me how to play this game. So he just stopped trying to find a way onto the field all the time. And was just like, I'm just going to go back to playing baseball the way I want to play baseball. I don't, I don't want to do this rote consistency thing. I just want to go unchecked like an ICBM attached to a mitt, and I'm just going to play. And if it gets me on the field, it gets me on the field, but I'm not going to play this other way. And I think, and then, and then now you're seeing, you're seeing what that is, is yeah. now that there's nobody to knock him off that, yeah. that, that confidence, he plays, he plays gold glove caliber defense, actual gold glove caliber right. defense, not yeah. Marcelo's Derek Jeter gold glove. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, and it's, I mean, I said that all along that, you know, he's a confidence player, and when he's confident, he's exciting, blah, 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 and people often would would follow that up with saying, well, he's trying too hard to hit home runs, or he's trying too hard to make these plays, or he's trying to, but when, when he, like you said, he'd be benched if he went 0 for 4, or he'd be benched if he missed a play at second base, or simultaneously he could be benched for a, a day that he went three for four and you yeah. know got picked off or whatever it didn't seem to matter what he tried to become and the player he tried to mold himself into it right. still wasn't getting him the the confidence of the manager and like you said when he kind of just went from that to like I'm just gonna do me <laughs> I'm just gonna play my game and Whatever happens, happens. And there was a, a yep. moment, I think, in that season where it kind of sounded like he thought he might not stay in St. Louis. Um, yeah. And people reacted to that as well and saying, oh, is he, you know, he, he, he doesn't want to stay in St. Louis. But I think that's when he got to the point where it was just like, I don't know what to do anymore. So I'm just going to go back to what I know how yeah. to do and whatever happens, happens. And that's when we started to see, as far as I'm concerned, the, the real Colton Wong start to make yeah. an impression on the team, on the organization, on the fan base. And then we saw even more of that last year. Well, in Tara, it's interesting that you use the word, like what, what the phrase, what player he wanted to mold himself into, because he admitted as much that he was searching for the guy that he thought the organization wanted. And you could and see so it. He, you could yeah, see it in every of that. Approach. And he'd be like, okay, well, I need to be more like that. And yeah. he's like, well, I need to be this guy. And he's like, but I couldn't be that guy because I'm not good at being that guy. Yeah. And guys like uh, Piscotty is an interesting comp because Pisc- Piscotty was almost uh, like an unsculpted block of marble. 
and he just went into the lab and studied approaches and, and swings and stances that he liked, and he just kind of created the hitter that he wanted to be. He, he did not have that identity, even in the minors. You know, he extended his swing so he could find more power. He was, he was always, he was like water. He was always taking a different shape of whatever container. Colton Wong was not that. And he tried, like you said, he tried to mold himself into something, but his style of play is, does not lend itself to being molded in Matt Carpenter's image, for example, at the plate. He just has to do what makes him, what has made him successful. And really, I think that he became more comfortable this year letting the plate numbers be what they may and just playing all-world defense. And it's funny that all of a sudden, once the world starts noticing how great of a defender he is, his offensive numbers go up. Hmm. And to speak to your point about him being a confidence-based player, sometimes it can matter to a guy that, like, finally people are noticing what I can do, and then all of a sudden you stop trying to prove them wrong because you're like, well, I'll just keep playing and I'll prove them wrong. And all of a sudden it becomes easier to hit. Weird how that all comes together. (laughs) Um, No, it's interesting. I... (laughs) much to the chagrin of both Cardinals fans and Cubs fans, uh, made a bold comparison between Javi Baez and Colton Wong before the national media was comparing Colton Wong and and Javi Baez. Not because they necessarily profile as the same player with the same skill set, but I think they they kind of have the same role, right? They're that guy that can be just absolutely mind-boggling in some aspect of the game, every time they're on the field and they can be the spark plug. They can do it at the plate. They can do it in the field. They're a little bit, um, a little bit maybe over the top in the way that they, they celebrate those moments. But early on in the season, I talked to someone who covers the Cubs and and he basically said about Javi Baez, he's at his best because Joe Madden just lets Javi be Javi. And at the time I made the comparison that, Part of the problem with Colton Wong is that he hasn't been given that same freedom to just be Colton Wong. So oh, when he ever. when he got that chance, um, again, that's when you start to see him kind of step into that moment a little bit more. And 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 I hope I hope that's the beginning of something in the Mike Schilt era where we see more and more of that um, because Colton finally has established for himself, if nothing else, who he is when he's at his best. Well, and that's in, in, I'll, I'll get into the batting numbers, the stuff that I like kind of tracked um, over the season. But if, like, I guess my question to Cardinals fans is if you have a perennial gold gloves, at least contender at second base, and he hits 250 with 13 home runs and can steal you 10 to 15 bases, is that, is that so bad? And my question would be, what, what guy do you go get that is a that is a three hundred hitter with a four you know four hundred plus OBP and plays Gold Glove at second base? I don't, and I, I guess maybe the argument to that is, well, Matt Carpenter went there and it was fine, you know, like we got his bat in the order and it wasn't that important that he wasn't a great second baseman. But I'd argue that when you're saving seventeen runs a game, it is important because especially when you have the, the situation the Cardinals have had where suddenly the rotation falls off a cliff or suddenly the bullpen falls off a cliff and there isn't a lot of elite defensive play anywhere else on the field, it's pretty critical that you have somebody who can change a game with their glove. And if he's hitting 250, okay, that's not great. But 
what's the alternative? Would you give up gold glove defense for a 275 average? Like at, at what point, what is the tipping point where the, the offense, even moderately improved offense, somehow outweighs the defense? I think that for too many fans, I think that that threshold is too low. I think that elite defense is, while not necessarily valued by the metrics, um, certainly game-changing and, and for no other reason, like, entertaining. Yeah. I mean, this isn't the State Department. It's a baseball team. Right. And I would love to watch athletes at the top of their craft do things that I could not imagine doing in a million years. Colton Wong fits that bill perfectly. I've watched more highlights of Colton Wong making plays defensively than I have of any home runs since the season ended. Yeah. Like, I'll go back and watch Colton Wong highlight reels any day because that's as incredible to me as, you know, anybody hitting a home run. But I would also say, because um, I've asked that question before as well, like, wh what at what point is Colton's offense going to be enough for people to accept that because of what he can do defensively? I don't think it has to be this astronomical, you know, middle of the order bat because when you look at the rest of that lineup, especially now, you add Paul Goldschmidt in, you still have Matt Carpenter, you have Paul DeYoung, who in many respects is a, a question mark because we haven't seen him with sustained success, but is very capable as a bat in the middle of the lineup as well. Then you bring in the, the guys from the outfield with Ozuna and, you know, you add that mix all together, and to your point, Colton Wong doesn't need to be your three-hole hitter. He doesn't need to be your leadoff guy. He doesn't need to be that driving force of the offense. So where's that Where's that balance when you look at what his offensive numbers are? Because, yes, obviously, I'd love to see Colton play an entire season like he did in those 40 games in the second half. Is that realistic? Probably not so much. But he's going to have those moments offensively because yeah. he's capable of that. And yes, there are going to be times where he's a little streaky and he's not hitting well. But if he can maintain the defense, particularly with a pitching staff that they hit, they're, they got a lot of ground ball pitchers on this staff. So that defense up the yeah. middle is going to be crucial. And Colton's the best option they have. And a lot of and a lot of uh, rotations and bullpens in order to preserve arms, strikeouts are on the rise, but that's a lot about approach and yeah. less about the design of the pitching staff anymore. I mean, the Cardinals admittedly, as of three years ago, were building rotations that were designed to pitch to bad contact because if you can get a ground ball on pitch one, you don't need three, four, five pitches for a strikeout. If you can't have a rotation built like that without guys like Colton Wong, I, you know, Matt Carpenter, you know, great hitter, but it's a different game when he's in the field because every ball hit to him is a breath holder. You know, every throw is, I don't know. Like you need reliable defense and adding Goldschmidt to the right side of the infield with Colton Wong. That is, and, and DeYoung has been a perfectly serviceable yeah. shortstop and I probably profiles more as a third baseman, but certainly is capable and certainly can get better. All of a sudden, ground balls are your bread and butter now, as opposed to, I mean, poor Mike Leake. Oh, his first year. His, his sitting in the independent ELA was like a full-on lower. I mean, you're looking, at, you're looking at guys that all of a sudden have to change how they approach uh, different hitters and approach lineups because they don't trust ground balls anymore. Colton Long takes some of that off of their shoulders and allows them to go deeper in, deeper in games, protects the bullpen, allows you to shop for different styles of relievers, even if you want to shorten games, because you don't need strikeout guys. You just need bad contact guys. 
it's, it's a ripple effect that we talked about with Yadier Molina, the, the imperceptible dominoes that fall because of how he plays. Colt Long is similar to that. He, he can change your, your decisions as Mike Schilt when you're looking at who you want to go to in certain situations. Because, God, if someone puts it on the ground, finally someone can pick it up and throw it to first, and it's not a keystone cop operation. And he can get to it literally anywhere between, you know, the foul line on the other side of first and basically shortstop. It's, it's, yeah. it's ridiculous. <laughs> and we talked about his batting. I wanted to throw a couple of these out here before I forget it. Like, what my, my, my issue with Colton Wong is even early on in his career, the, the shocking amount of times that he was down 0-2 or 1-2 because he was so very, very aggressive and he was always in the hole. And I did, I looked these up today in anticipation for this. One, I knew that, I knew these stats that, this was this year, so he had, keep in mind, bad, bad numbers, but good in the second half. But the underpinnings of an improved offense are there. It was the lowest swing percentage at pitches outside of the zone in his career. It was also the lowest swing percentage of his career because he was not just like fangs out every time he was up at the plate. He was actually being a little bit more, a little bit more thoughtful. And it was the highest zone percentage. People were throwing him strikes more because he was taking more and chasing less, which is good. Obviously, the second half, he had a great, he had a great flash line. But I wanted to bring this up because I don't know if anyone else has mentioned this before. This, so this year, the pitcher was ahead in 170, 107 plate appearances compared to 150 plate appearances where Wong was ahead. This was almost the first time in his career that those numbers have actually been right. In 2014, the pitcher was ahead 89 to 81. In 2015, 118 to 113. 2016, 73 to 70. For, for those three years, the pitcher was always ahead more often than Wong was. 2017, he barely edged him, barely edged him, 81 to 77. All of a sudden this year, 152 plate appearances to 107. The gap between him being behind in the count and him being ahead in the count, it's widening now, which yeah. is yeah. is a trend that you want to see. If it was yeah. always the same, if he was always consistently behind or if he was always right on the edge, then you're like, boy, he's just not getting it. But he's in. he was in less O2 counts percentage-wise. He was ahead in counts way more than he ever was in his career. He had the highest barrel rate of his career. And he, his hard hit percentage was second highest. So the, the, I think it was like 2015 was, he had a very good one, but he was right at the MLB average of high. So like his discipline stats are getting better. He's hitting the ball harder and more consistently harder. This year he had a brutal launch angle. I mean, like, I know that that is the term that everyone is focusing on, but uh, the MLB, so he had, I think it was, it was his launch angle was 6.8 and his career is 9.3. So like he had a brutal launch angle. A lot of that is the first half. Yeah. However, if you look at the DNA of his offensive performance, he's fixing the problems that plagued him. So the results might not have been there in the first half. They were certainly there in the second half. And the argument then is, okay, is that a 40-game fluke? Is that just a hot streak? What is it? And my argument, admittedly, with small data sets, is that, no, that is the fruits of a better approach. And it took time, but that 300 average isn't an anomaly. It's because he's, he's chasing less. He's hitting the ball harder. He's got more discipline. He's letting the pitchers make mistakes and getting ahead and then seeing more pitches in the zone than ever before. 
Yeah. That's my argument. So if you want a reason for why, why should we believe the Colton Wong is ever going to hit? That's my argument right there is that he's, he's smartening up. Now he's 28, but oh, oh well, I mean, he's your second baseman. Yeah. You signed him to, you signed him to a multi-year <laughs> deal. You want to see your second baseman getting better at the things that he was bad at. And I would say two things uh, as a follow-up to that. One, I think I would argue that part of that progress is because he stopped trying to become this other guy and just decided to do, this is my thing, so I'm going to do this thing. And the second thing is, just like I was saying from very early on with when Johnny Rodriguez was telling me how hard he works to make those improvements, that if you give him something to focus on, give him something to work on, give him the right tools to do that, rather than kind of this overbearing, you got to be this or you got to be that, just let him work on what he's good at. He's going to put the work in and and see some progress. So I, I, it's a trend in the right direction. I'm sure a lot of people won't buy into it because 40 games in the second half, whatever. But um, hopefully it means, <laughs> hopefully it means good things well, in 2019. <laughs> and, my, and my argument too would be like, those stats don't all come from those 40 games. Right. I mean, those are cumulative stats, right? So like yep. if, if I was in the bar argument right now, my my thing would be like, well, he didn't just all of a sudden do it so well for 40 games that he canceled out everything else percentage-wise. Yeah. That's a cumul- those are cumulative numbers. He's getting better. This is a lot like what we saw with Matt Adams, when every time the Cardinals were like, well, he's got these, this problem with the shift. He's got this problem with power to the opposite field. He's got this problem with lefties. And you go back and you look, and every year he got better at all of those things. And then surprise, surprise, he goes out and has career years elsewhere. So a lot of that is – they were Matt Adams wasn't sure what the Cardinals wanted him to be. He tried a million things and eventually just started being himself. And then by the time that he left, he was raking in Washington, raking in Atlanta, and Wong in the same way. He he stopped trying to to parse the message, try stop trying to find the signal and all the noise, and be like, well, who am I supposed to be? He's just like, all right, I'm just going to go do the thing that I I yep. can do. Yeah. And. What you saw at the end of the year, in my opinion, was the the, the fruits of that labor. Yeah, yeah, I I completely agree. Um, I feel like there's a lot more we could dive into as far as his numbers and what they show. But I did have a few people send some questions. We've already talked a little bit about some of these, but uh, I'm going to throw them at you anyway. Um, first question is what batting average, and then in parentheses, I know, I know, because <laughs> it's batting average. <laughs> uh, what batting average does Colton Wong have to have to win a gold glove in 2019 isn't that like that's a good question and isn't that so stupid yes that's the dumbest <laughs> thing in the world but like what what offensive numbers does he have to put up to win this defensive award yeah. um which to colton's which, point which, is why he said what he did right why he yeah. said if i don't win a gold glove then there's something wrong with the system because you get a question like this what batting average does he need to win a defensive <laughs> award <laughs> And I promise, uh, this is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blitz the last couple numbers just to back him up, and then I promise I'll leave the numbers alone. Um, so I looked it up again today now that it's all done. The ultimate zone ratings on, on Fangrass, uh, his was 13 by 4, which was the best by two and a half runs. His UZR over 150 was 17.6, which was the best by five runs at the position with people of at least 800 innings. He made... 16% of plays considered remote, so a 1% to 10% chance of being made. He made 16% of those, bested only by Ozzy Albies. And of the p- plays considered unlikely, he made 43% of those, which is 10% more than DJ LeMahieu. That is insane. Oh. So, so 
So his argument, so like these plays get made 10 to 40% <laughs> of the time. He made them 43% of the time. LeMahieu made it 10% less. So his argument about if I don't win, it's kind of broken. All right, that, that backs it up. It Here's holds up. <laughs> which is, you know, defensive metrics are broken, but UCR is, a, UCR is a pretty close, the best we can do right now. He's the best by miles in all of these. So he was right. It does seem a little broken. Well, he had a great season, but like by the numbers by which we measure defense, what we have, he is so clearly superior that I don't understand how it happened. But to, to that question, uh, you know, I'd say at this point, I'd say 265 and double digit home runs it pretty much locks it up. I think, I mean, I, I could be off base, but I think that those numbers, those get you there. I mean, uh, what's Ozzie Smith? I mean, he's considered to be the best shortstop to ever play the game. What's not? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the guy wasn't batting 323 or whatever. Right. Like, I, I think that if you're, if you're north of 260, then the offense is no, no longer part of the discussion. Yeah. And I think, my again, this is sort of a weird, twisted part of this whole thing. But I would say in a second consecutive season of gaining that national attention for defense, um, there are going to be more people who will buy into the numbers that say he's best at the position, even if the offense isn't there to back up the defensive award? And that, Again. <laughs> I mean, it cuts both ways with, like, Yachty. Like, yeah. there, were, there were seasons where Yachty was, by the numbers, not the best defensive catcher. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And was, in fact, pretty bad at the plate. But he was winning these awards because, because that national consciousness had kind of propelled it. And then there became that self-perpetuating narrative of, like, well, he does so much that you can't measure. And the voters are kind of like, yeah, he does so much that you can't measure. And so he kind of had that through inertia, not to take anything yeah. away from him. But Colton Long is suffering the opposite. He yep. is essentially a nobody in the gold glove race until 2018. Yeah. So yeah. TJ LeMahieu is not. So yeah. I think you're right. I think that if he, if he shows up on ESPN Sports Center's top 10 a few more times, I think, if he, I think the batting average is a good point. I think if he gets 260, I don't think there's much of a debate because this defensive numbers alone, he was the clear-cut winner. Uh, absolutely. Um, okay, so this was a question from Ben Cerruti over at Birds on the Black. He actually did some projections for numbers for a lot of players this season. Uh, he's got Colton that I think like 259 as sort of the baseline um, average. So maybe that 259 is enough for the for the Gold <laughs> Glove voters. But he asks, uh, if Colton plays like he did in 2018 on defense for the next five years, he would be the best defensive second baseman since who? For the Cardinals or for like in? I mean, in he didn't he didn't specify. So choose your own adventure. <laughs> but I mean, five I, years I, of that kind of defense is. I, I mean, sense. I, I I almost feel like if you play at this level for five years, I think you can throw out the sense qualifier. Yeah. <laughs> I, if you see this level of defense for what's what's call it six years, counting twenty eighteen. I'm not sure who else. I mean, who are you put in that discussion? I, I mean, maybe I'm a little. I don't even know, man. It's uh, because I agree. I think it's so hard. I, they're just that category gets real small real fast. I think. Yeah, because I mean, and admittedly, second base has not been. Yeah, like, that's part of it. A bastion, a bastion of of like uh, legendary defensive <laughs> names. If we're talking shortstop, maybe a different story, but. I would be curious. I would be curious what name he was putting 
like he was expecting was putting up there. I would I would argue that there is no sense if he plays if he plays six straight years of this kind of defense where he is again by admittedly flawed metrics five runs better than everybody else in the field if he's making impossible plays or, or unlikely or remote plays at a rate that is this successful i don't think you've seen second base played this way necessarily especially in the era of the sheer amount of data that hitters have and the ability and and, and i mean admittedly shifts and stuff like that but that also takes a guy who grew up playing second base standing where he usually stands and now he's out of position a lot. That's another, that's another tricky part if he's in shallow, right. But I think that if you continue to put up these numbers, cause that hurts your UZR if you're on, if you're in a ship. Right. So if you were to play through that, I don't think there is a baseman <laughs> that would put up a six year stretch like this. Yeah. And I think that's what is so impressive about the way that he plays is that, um, you know, to see that kind of consistency in the plays he's capable of making is so I don't I don't know that I have an answer to that either, um, just because that level of ability on that consistent of a basis is rare in this era of baseball in all I th- at all, I think. So I, was, I was just looking at the names of of who would be considered the best defensive second baseman and so many of them are of an era that yeah. is not comparable to this. Yeah. And that was my issue. Yep. Like Bill Mazeroski, I was like, I mean, you could say that, but like, it's been 60 years. Like, how do you compare the, like, and, yep. and, and I, I'd be actually interested to hear who else people would throw out. I mean, obviously there've been some good ones, but like all the ones that you can remember as being like, these are great second basemen played in an era that like, I, you just can't, yeah. you can't match those one to one. And I think that, even even if you could, six years of this production, I don't think there's a, a defensive second baseman in the Hall of Fame that comes near that. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Well, follow-up question to that uh, from Larry Dupree. He says, does Colton plan to reduce his intensity as a strategy for preventing injury? Because I think that's part of the key for him right now, right, is staying on the field and, and continuing to be yeah. able to to play a full season primarily healthy which is hard to do when as we discussed you're playing at you know 11 or 12 all the time well i know i know that you talked to derek yeah and i know that and in that episode i think this was brought up and now i admittedly have not talked to colton wong recently about that um but i have spoken with him and essentially the responses were the same from what derek gave you and and what colton gave me was that like Certain guys, they play this way because this is how they made it. This is what makes them a major leaguer is this level of play, this sort of recklessness. And I I don't mean recklessness like it's not thought out, but more about risk-taking. I don't think Colton Wong is ever going to dial it back and play at 85%. And I I understand why, because who is he if he's 85%? Is he okay, he's a good second baseman. He's not a great one. And to make it in, in Major League Baseball, you have to consistently perform to the maximum ability if you want to keep getting paid and you want to stay on the field. And for him, maximum ability, maximum performance means maximum effort. And I, he is fully aware of the risk-reward in this. And I, I, I think that he made his, his peace with this long ago that – I will gladly risk missing 20 games uh, to make those 
three, four plays that nobody else in the game can make. Because the second I stop making those, I'm no longer special. I'm no longer, I'm no longer the value. You know, like people like you and me, we're not having this conversation right. if his UZR is nine. Yeah. It's a little bit harder to argue. Yep. He knows that too. His value is, is unparalleled defense. And for him, that means dives and sprints and plays that make you wince when he makes them. Because I, I don't think he's going to dial it back. I think some of it is, some of that's luck based, how you land, you know, your, your, whether your muscles were tight that morning, you know, things like that. But I don't think that there's going to be, you're not going to see like a defensively lobotomized Colton Wong because what's the incentive there? Yeah. I mean, one, in his defense, he has his contract. But more importantly, like his value, if he makes 10 all world plays in the year and misses 15 games, that's an exchange I think he's willing to take every time. And I'd argue that the Cardinals are probably willing to take it too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I it's, it's a weird balance, I think, to try to tell a guy you know, this is the thing that you do really well. Maybe don't do it quite so well. It's a, it's a hard sell yeah. when he knows that that's his, that's his thing. Yeah. That's what's going to keep him on the field. Even if and, at and, times it takes him off the field. <laughs> well, yeah. And they've, and, and so far it's been really successful telling Yadier Molina that he should yeah. stop trying to catch 140 games a year. Right. Yeah. That's... But because for the last five years, they've successfully limited his innings, right? Like that's yeah. certain guys know, like, yeah, to be my best, this is the way I have to play. And Molina has dodged catastrophic injury. I mean, he's, he's gone through some stuff, but largely he's avoided it. Colton Wong got hit by it. Same with Tommy Sam. Tommy Sam said, I'll never slow down. I'll yeah. never stop. Because the second I do, I'm not a major leaguer. Yeah, you, you, it's hard to take away the thing that made someone capable of playing at that level and then expect them to to just roll with that. Okay, last question for you to uh, sort of launch this into the future of Colton Wong. What's your take on Wong's long-term future with the Cardinals? And this is uh, something that I go round and round with people on because so many uh, so many trade conversations seem to involve Colton Wong. And again, like we said at the beginning, it's a little mind-boggling to me to, to want to improve the team and, and take Colton Wong out of the middle of the infield. But nonetheless, is he their guy now? Um, I think I think he's their guy. I know that there were conversations about trades. I'm always very wary about uh, free agent meetings and trade talk because so much of it is gamesmanship. You know, leaking. I, you know, we met with this person because I'm driving the price up, or we didn't meet with this person because I want the price to be low. And like mm-hmm. the trade value, like you're floating Colton Long out there, but you have no intention of trading him because you're trying to get somebody to bite on something else. Yeah. And you're going to do the bait. It's a lot of that is very difficult to parse for accuracy. My, my thought for him is you, you address this in one of your episodes where the reason that you liked Bryce Harper is we are reaching the end of a chapter in this franchise and the future is somewhat uncertain and certainly unwritten. And that Bryce Harper would be, I think this is your point that Bryce Harper is, if he signs signals, this is the next chapter in, in St. Louis history, right? Like that this is the next iteration of this franchise. There are, we are approaching that point, whether they sign Harper or not. I mean, Molina is for all intents and purposes, winding down. Obviously Adam Wainwright's winding down. Matt Carpenter is winding down. You are, you are saying goodbye to a, a core, you know, you already said goodbye to Matt Holiday. So there is a, it, there is a, significant gap between right now in my mind the cardinals that are and the cardinals that will be 
guys like Colton Long represent the connected tissue between those two chapters. And so my, if from, from my gut, I don't think, I think he has less value in a trade, although his contract is very attractive. I think he has less value in a trade. Guys, you know, teams don't like to trade for second baseman unless they're big hitters. They're not going to trade for a glove. He has more valuable, more value to the team on the field than he does in a trade. And more importantly, for continuity's sake, which this organization covets and clings to like grim death, you are here in 2018 and where you're going to be in 2022 is somewhat up in the air. Yep. Guys like him connect. And that's important because he bridges those two chapters. And whatever DeYoung grows into and Bader grows into, and if they sign Ozuna and that all becomes something different, and someday maybe they'll have another catcher to replace Yachty, or maybe he'll just be out there on wires, stay back <laughs> on play. But this team, I think, really, really values um, those kind of guys, those guys that will move into their early, you know, their late 20s through their early 30s through the franchise and provide that continuity, answer those questions, because you're going to have to rebuild a rotation. you got a very intriguing bullpen, but you're always going to have to reload. You're going to have to find a third baseman at some point. Your outfield, while exciting, not set in stone. You need answers to questions as you start to write that next chapter. He is a very good answer to he's our second baseman. Presumably they hope to expand, extend Paul Goldschmidt as another bridge guy. So it's, it's very valuable to have the right side of your infield settled as you start to build, you know, Cardinals next version. And so I think that if it, if it was me, maybe they let him hit free agency. I could see that if, you know, if, if especially the market being what it is, but the market being what it is, he could also sign a much, you know, like a, a low AAV deal. And they could probably want to sign and extend him before this new CBA comes up in 2021 yeah. before it gets very messy. Yeah. So the, like, I guess the, the, for me, the stack on him being with the team long-term is piled a lot higher than the other stack because you're not going to trade him. And I don't know what the advantage would be letting him go because you don't have like the next great second baseman letting in the wings. You have an answer. He's 28. He can he'll be playing this way. You know, you, you got him until play, like he's 32, 33. Fine. That takes care of that takes care of so many problems. You have one less question mark on your ledger. Yeah, which they have a lot of right now. Um, yeah. And and hopefully Colton Wong is not one of them in 2019. I don't want to let you go before I give you a chance to. Uh, I know you uh, uh, have a, a take on Bryce Harper. You brought it up. <laughs> um, I've uh, been saving uh, this yeah, just no. just to to you know let it let it linger as the going uh, away thought, but. <laughs> Bryce Harper, yes or no? <laughs> uh, so, admittedly, some of this is a, a bit of a, a character, a little bit of a work. Um, but I've, I've convinced myself that I can argue against Bryce Harper largely for – now, I was just reading about Boris's new trick with the opt-in, opt-out for the franchise to avoid the luxury tax, <laughs> which is really interesting, but I won't get into that now. However, 10 years, $300 million, even if that was the price, Right. At his best, Bryce Harper is very intriguing. Five out of seven years, Bryce Harper hasn't had an OPS of 1,000. Last year, Bryce Harper led the NL in walks, didn't even have a 400 on-base percentage. Bryce Harper can play at MVP levels, and he has done so once and arguably twice. But this whole deal where people are like, you have to take the whole career and you have to judge this by a cumulative thing and then decide if you want to pay that guy. All right. 
five out of seven years, this guy is good. He's not great. He's he he can he can bang some home runs, but how many times has he how many times has he hit less than thirty home runs? How many times has he hit less than two seventy five at the plate? I know batting average, whatever. I think he said uh, RBIs again, but he's failed to hit a hundred five out of seven years. My argument is, if this guy's name is not Bryce Harper, I don't think that him being twenty six is enough to be ever like. If you looked at this dude on paper. And his name wasn't Bryce Harper. He's 26 years old. That's very exciting. He's had two monster years, and he's had five years that were good, not great. Certain aspects are elite, but not all of them. And people were wringing their hands over Marcelo Zuna. You brought Marcelo Zuna on the back of his career year, and everyone's like, oh, I don't know. That's the new G's. Bryce Harper said, what, two of those? And all of a sudden now, it's like, yeah, definitely $300 million. I'm just saying... (laughs) In baseball, you have to be consistently good, not occasionally great. For $300 million, you have to be consistently great. That's a fair argument. And I think the the fact that – now, part of this is just that Bryce Harper's camp keeps everything very, very quiet. But uh, the, the fact that we're in almost the second week of January and, um, you know, there are still so many – of these big names yet unsigned. Oh, yeah. I think I think there are teams that are are willing to make that argument and say, "Look, we're we're ha- we're happy to spend this money, but on the right terms and maybe it's not, you know, two out of I mean, seven Cardinals, years." Cardinals <laughs> at 300 million dollars from for Albert Pujols. Now, his best years were behind him, sure. But for 300 million dollars, you'd expect Pujols prime. Yeah. You'd expect him to be unquestionably one of the best three hitters in baseball almost every season. Bryce Harper has not been that. And most recently, wasn't even close. And when you have a, an NL leading was like 120 walks or something, and you still aren't on base at a 400 clip, that's, that's a bad position to be bargaining from. I don't care if you are 26 and Bryce Harper. So for me, I understand a lot of the arguments, and one of those is, like you said, Bryce Harper is the bridge guy, and that does do something, and that does matter, and the fact that he's entering his physical prime and all of that. But if, if you're looking at the, the sheet right now, I don't see $300 million on that baseball reference page. It's very difficult for me to get there, and I'm going to get shredded on Twitter for this, and I completely understand it. But look at it, and you know those old player A, player B comparisons? Yeah. It's it's real tricky when you look at you can get a guy like you can get a guy for like Matt Carpenter's offense for a fraction of that. That's why owners are like, I don't know about this. Like if the Cardinals could find a guy like Matt Carpenter and pay him one fifth of that, like seems better. Yeah. <laughs> seems yeah. like I have a lot I have a lot more money and flexibility if I don't do this. <laughs> it definitely, yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a ton of money. It's a ton of years. And I think that scares people away because of the, uh, the, the possibility of, you know, only four out of 10 years being that, that MVP guy or whatever it is. I think, you know, the argument can be made that if it's the first four years of that contract, maybe that gives you like the, the bridge or it gives you the, the missing piece or whatever it is. But, um, it's certainly not uh, perhaps as as cut and dried 
as uh, as it can be presented. It's that weird, it's that weird certainty that yeah. Vice is is synonymous with like Mike Trout. Yeah. And then you go back and you look at his numbers, which are admittedly very good, but like where does this absolute certainty come from that you get Bryce Harper and your problems are solved? If you had Bryce Harper from this season, does does he push the Cardinals into the playoffs and into the NLCS into the World Series? Look at his numbers. And it's funny, I I mean obviously I've I've been a proponent of the Bryce Harper thing because I think it does solve a lot of a lot more issues than just 2019. But when the Cardinals made the trade for Paul Goldschmidt, um, and a lot of people were saying, ah, oh, Paul Goldschmidt's not enough. My argument was, well, then Bryce Harper wouldn't have been enough by himself either. Because you, you can't just look at it in a vacuum um, and, and make one guy that it's not how baseball works. Anyway, that's a whole nother conversation. We could go uh, on and on about that. And, and Tad, that's <laughs> a great point. It's a great point that I don't think gets said enough. That like, as though, like, if it wasn't this name, it wasn't enough. And if it was one name, then no one name is enough. Because if Marcelo Zuna hits like he hit, I, you can have Babe Ruth. It wouldn't matter. Yeah. Ruth, you need more than one bat in nine slots. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's uh, I think, I where it gets, you know, everybody wants everybody wants to, to be the winner of whatever the, <laughs> whatever the sweepstakes is on the free agent market. But um, plenty of that to come yet as, as man, a lot of names have to have, have yet to come off the board. So we'll look forward to that. But um, thank you again for joining me, man. I, I could talk Colton Wong all night, but um, this was fun. Course. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. Well, I didn't talk too much. No, no, no. I was, man. Like I said, I could talk about it all night, and I hope that this is the season where um, we're we're no longer alone. <laughs> I just, I honestly, I hope that this is the the end of the what do we do with Colton Wong debate. That's yeah. all. I, I don't need everyone to agree that he's an all star. I just need everyone to be like, oh no, no, this is your second phase. Yeah. That's all I want. That's, oh. that's it. I'll take that. I'll take that and run with it all day. Um, JJ, thanks so much. We'll uh, look forward to tracking that this season um, as we go along. Awesome. Thanks again for having me. So how'd we do? Did we convince you of something that maybe you were unsure of before? Because if we didn't, I'm pretty sure I can get JJ back and we'll do a whole nother hour to try to finally win you over. So let me know if we need to set that up. If you're already on board with Team Colton, welcome to the show. And I sincerely hope that this is the year that a lot of people start to see what some of us have believed was there all along. Thanks again to JJ for joining me. Make sure you are following him at the JJ Bailey on Twitter, where you can find any of his Cardinals coverage, as well as blazing hot takes on other things like Bryce Harper or Chick-fil-A. Find him there. Find me at Tara Wellman. Make sure you're subscribed to the show here. Check it out at Birds on the Black, and I will see you next time.